0: Have you ever been really, really hungry?
1: You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast.
0: I'm Alex. I'm Carmella. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of
1: this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode 10, where we're moving on to the ice to look at the Lost Franklin Expedition. do you like to hear about the franken expedition please tell me more so when we discussed the essex ah uh, we... the essex yeah we talked about how that's sort of your thing and yeah i'd say franken's my gateway cannibal to the <laughs> interest in this area <laughs> that's fair that's fair i just think it's a really it's a really great story i like the mystery of it i don't think it's so
0: great for them I think they probably had quite a rough time.
1: Well, <laughs> well, don't spoil the ending for our listeners. <laughs> Sorry, what's our podcast called again? You don't know how this is going to go. <laughs> Let's set the scene. On the morning of the 19th of May, 1845, we got the two bomb vessels, HMS Erebus and Terror. They're setting sail from the village of Greenhithe in Kent. What happens next is soon going to become one of the coolest mysteries of the Victorian era. Get out. I won't make that joke again. I had to get it out of my system. <laughs> and it's going to take over 170 years to solve, if it can even be called solved today. So let's Ooh. let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's start at the start. So we're in the mid-Victorian era. We're super excited about science. We love a bit of science. Mm-hmm. Royal society's going strong. Yeah. Exploring the globe. Yes. Colonising places. That's the next one on my <laughs> list. Proving that we're better than other Europeans and everyone in general. Being
0: both racist and xenophobic at the same time. Yeah, yeah. A so... high
1: quality of British explorers. Yeah, so this is this is sort of our deal. And as part of that, Arctic and Antarctic exploration is really in vogue.
0: They really want to show those penguins and polar bears what for.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And prove that we're the best at navigation and exploration by getting to those remote places first. So one of the races is, who will be the first to discover the Northwest Passage?
0: I just have the song in my head now. It's
1: such a good song. I've been listening to it all week, just on loop. Uh,
0: The song we're talking about is Northwest Passage by Stan Rogers. Have Northwest Passage on in the background as you're listening to this podcast. I think it'll really give you Mm. that sense of tragedy, despair,
1: but also a fun, folksy, catchy song. Yeah, yeah. So for those who don't know, the Northwest Passage is a sea route via the Arctic from Britain and mainland Europe through the Canadian Arctic archipelago and ending up in East Asia. So Basically, mid-Victorian era, if you want to get to the far east of Asia, you've got to go all the way over Europe and Russia. So they're looking for a shorter way round. Also, you can go under. Yeah, you can go under as well, but that. Takes a while. Yeah, that's why they want to go over. They think if they go over Canada, it will be quicker. It's still a hypothetical in the Victorian era. So they want to use it as a shipping route. The Victorians aren't the first people to look for it. I think there's records of it being searched for since like the 16th century. Martin Frobisher. I think it's
0: something like 1572. I'm now just derailing here. Fun connection between Frobisher's Arctic exploration and another possibly non-cannibalism mystery, because if you look up Martin Frobisher, he had an artist with him, a man called John White. John White is the man who will later lead the lost colony of Roanoke.
1: Oh! Yeah! Oh, that's really fun. So,
0: no evidence there was cannibalism at Roanoke, but also no evidence of anything at Roanoke, because it's another mystery... And with that beautiful segue, back to the Franklin mystery. Thank you, I'm very
1: proud of myself. That's very well remembered. So the Victorians have been, for the first half of the century, they have been trying to find it, mostly because the second secretary of the Admiralty, Sir John Barrow, he's just really big, big into it. It's like his baby, he wants to find that Northwest Passage. And, in fact, the decision to send out the Franklin mission is made the day before Barrow retires. So it was like a little little leaving present for him. We've got you a watch, and we've got you
0: hundreds of men to go look for a little bit of ice. Yay! (laughs) Little party popper.
1: So, for the mission, let's go through our main guys. See, now I'm afraid I'm just
0: trying to work out who from our dramatic persona is going to feature in our next Bills and Boone novel
1: <laughs> here's the thing with the Bills and Boone is thanks to the AMC series The Terror which is very loosely based on a novel which is very loosely based on this mystery, we've already got all, all of the um, the romance, fiction and fan art that we could ever desire of the men of this mission so we don't have to request it, it's, it's out there guys <laughs> I know that we've maybe insulted some of the crew choices of our former nautical missions and implied that they were foolishly chosen. But I think that actually the Franklin expedition, at least on paper, sounds like a polar dream team. We've got Sir John Franklin. He's an Arctic heavyweight. He's undertook a North Pole attempt in 1818, which was unsuccessful because of the ice. Well, (laughs) gets in the way and also famously commanded an overland expedition in North Canada. It ended poorly, with food running out, and reports that at least one man resorted to cannibalism before being shot. So when I was mentioning this to my girlfriend, she was like, oh, and they chose to send him on another mission after he'd already had one cannibal mission? But I feel like, I mean, it comes with the territory of Arctic exploration, and you're probably better off with someone who's experienced that and can survive it. I think it's not a bad choice to send him because he knows the dangers.
0: Well, he has helped to map 3,000 miles of coastline. It's not like they're just sending him in blind.
1: Yeah, exactly. His published journal of that adventure was a bestseller in England and he's a popular hero. He's known as the man who ate his boots, which is better than being the man who ate his friends, I guess. So you got Sir John. Johnny Boy. Johnny Boy. Yeah, he's been out of the loop for a while because he's been governor of Tasmania, or it was Van Diemen's Land at the time, and then lost that post because I think the people just didn't like him. I couldn't really find an accurate explanation of why he lost it. I think they just didn't like him. I mean, it doesn't bode great. No, and he is quite... At the age of 59, he's getting on a bit. Um, Rude. He's prime of life. He could still be around today if it wasn't for that pesky ice. Well, the first choice for the mission, uh, Ross, he said that he was too old to do it and Ross was younger than Franklin. So the Admiralty chose him, and possibly just because they know that he wants a win and they feel a bit sorry for him. Like, you deserve this after a long, long history of failure. See,
0: you said that this meant that he was a great person to lead the expedition.
1: I'm not seeing it. Yeah, I've maybe taught myself out of it. But <laughs> I still think that he's he's a good candidate. Okay. Nevertheless. And the fact is that, obviously, first choice Ross didn't want to do it, so Franklin wants to do it. That is definitely something that qualifies you for going to the Arctic, I think. You know the dangers and you're still going to go. The ships as well I'm going to consider characters in this story, the Terror and the Erebus, because they're, they're a very strong choice. They've just completed a groundbreaking Antarctic mission. And so they're kitted out for ice breaking. they got state-of-the-art steam propulsion to help them through pack ice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Choo-choo. And they work well together. Um, They're friends. They are friends. They're sisters. That's what they're referred to as, sister ships, which is nice. Second in command, we've got Commander James Fitzjames. So he's in charge of the Erebus. If his name sounds made up, that's because it might be. <laughs> um, very little is known about his background, and some theories say he might be the bastard son of an English baron, and that his name, they were like, well, they sort of did a Jean Valjean kind of thing. James Fitzjames, like, yeah. It
0: sounds like a name a human child might have. He could have been
1: John Fitzjohn or William Fitzwilliam. William, William Fitzwilliam sounds quite good. That's a good name. Oh, here's another here's another fun bit about Fitzjames. It's been suggested that the reason Sir John Barrow's chosen him is because he owes him one, as Fitzjames may have helped John Barrow's son out of a sticky situation when they were stationed together in Asia. The details are vague, but one of his biographers suggests that it may even be a homosexual incident. He's a great ally, is Fitzjames. <laughs> so just some fun trivia. He's also a popular man, and he's got some good sailing experience under the belt. And then in charge of the Terror is Captain Francis Crozier. He's uniquely qualified, as he was also Captain of the Terror during the Antarctic voyage. The situation is a little orcs, though, because Crozier has a bit of a crush on Franklin's niece, Sophia Carcroft, who doesn't return his affections. So that makes it all a bit strained and awkward, because I think they all sort of know that. And just don't talk about it.
0: I can't imagine that being a very harmonious time aboard ship.
1: No. Niece and ward, I should say. She lives with Franklin, and so you know, is similar to a daughter in terms of. Oh, it's
0: all very Jane Eyre, isn't it? Yeah.
1: The fun thing about this is that they actually took some early daguerreotypes of most of the officers on the crew. So we have photographs of all these guys, which is just nice to put the faces to the names.
0: Honestly, these millennials taking their selfies and just, oh, frivolous. Honestly. Go and get an oil painting commissioned (laughs) like a civilised gentleman of society.
1: (laughs) So when they depart, they have 24 officers, 110 men, a dog called Neptune or Old Nep, a cat and a monkey called Jacko. What's the cat called? I don't know. I can't find its name. That is a crime. The cat is not going to come up again. We don't know what happens to the cat. So I can
0: make a very educated guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So when they depart, they've got two escort ships and a transport ship that's going to carry extra supplies for them as far as Greenland, so they're not on their own at the moment. They stop off at the Orkneys. The escort vessels turn back. Um, They have to take one of the seamen back with them because he's got TB already.
0: That's good. I mean, also good to get rid of him. Yeah,
1: but uh, don't you worry. There will be much more consumption, in all senses of the word, going on. Well done. Well done. Round of applause. It's pretty smooth sailing as the three ships continue. Um, At Disco Bay on the Greenland coast, supplies are moved on to Erebus and Terra. So then the transport ship can head home and it takes with it some last letters for friends and family and four more crew members who are too ill to continue.
0: I think later those five will look back and be like, yeah, I'm glad I had TB. Bit of a shame, but uh, all in all, had a better time of it.
1: I don't know whether they survived the TB or not. I have to say I can't remember. Oh, I think one of them survived quite well, actually, if I remember. I mean, he probably was quite smug. Yeah. Or sad that all of his friends died. But also probably quite smug. <laughs> um, So Erebus and Terra are well provisioned because they've had all that extra stuff from the supply ship. They got enough food and drink for three years on normal rations or much longer if they reduce rations. And they're so full in fact that they can't even fit everything in from the transport ship and some of it has to go back home. That'll end well, but they're well stocked. For three years. They're prepared. They they think they're prepared. (laughs) So over the next few weeks, various vessels run into the two ships and report their progress back to Britain, and everything appears to be going to plan. They're spotted heading for Baffin Bay and have a conversation with a whaler called the Enterprise. Claim they're confident that despite the ice, they will reach the entrance to Lancaster Sound by mid-August, as they've been ordered to do. So everything seems to be going well. On the 26th of July, men aboard a whaler called the Prince of Wales. Hey, (laughs) It's a great, great name for a whaler. The Prince of Wales speak with officers from the Erebus, and this is the last confirmed recorded sighting of the ships by Westerners until literally this decade we're living in right now not to spoil the end of the story. So, that's the mystery. Where do the ships go? What happens to them? Let's find out. It was always expected that the ships would be out of contact with Britain for years and, of course, they've got provisions for
0: three and they're heading up into the ice and there's no way for them to actually... Yeah, that makes sense. Just
1: send them out, go, go explore, come home when it's tea time. Yeah, so people aren't really worried when they don't hear from them for... Years on end, because that's what was going to happen anyway. So we get the first trickles of alarm in 1847, because that will be the third winter on the ice. That's starting to get towards the end of their rations. If they're on full rations. If they're on full rations. Three relief expeditions are sent out that winter to see if they can locate Franklin. And his wife, Jane Franklin, is one of the main drivers behind this. She puts pressure on... Several old friends in the Admiralty to join in. Um, she's, she's very proactive. See, I was going to say something less polite. I was going to say
0: she's a bit of a battle axe.
1: That too. That too. But I guess, like, she's worried for her husband. Tenacious. Tenacious.
0: She does a very good job as a woman in Victorian England to get shit done.
1: Yeah. Do we swear on this podcast? I can't remember. I think we do. We do. <laughs> I okay. think there's been swearing. So none of those three missions find any traces of Franklin, which increased the sense in Britain that something's gone wrong. But also, the Arctic is really big. It is, and there's a lot of ice in the way. <laughs> famous. It's famous. Arctic, famous for its ice. It's got a lot of that ice. <laughs> So, over the following years, many more missions are sent out and with an increased emphasis on finding bodies or wreckage rather than survivors, as time goes on. In 1850, a mission led by Erasmus omanny Now, that's a Bills and Boone name. Yeah, Erasmus omanny He finds the first traces of the Franklin expedition at Cape Riley on Devon Island, and they also find a cairn on Beachy Island nearby. If you don't know your Arctic geography, we'll put a map in the show notes for you to have a look at, because I think describing it would be boring.
0: Well, a bit of ice next to another bit of ice near an island in the sea with some ice. It's all a bit samey after a while. Yeah.
1: Then a ship very appropriately named the Lady Franklin discovers three graves on Beachy Island. Lady Franklin
0: will come up in a later episode. Dot, dot, dot.
1: As we start to discover, the Arctic and Antarctic naval exploration is all, it's a very small world. It's a bit incestuous. Yeah, there's a lot. Not literally. Probably. What does Lady Franklin find? The ship, the Lady Franklin, discovers three graves. They're dated from January to April 1846, so that's only the first year after setting out. And the markers identify the bodies of members of Franklin's party. Some bits of wreckage are then discovered further south by the Victoria Strait and it was concluded that they must have floated down from the north because this is very far off the planned route. As it will later turn out, that's because the Erebus and Terror did not stick to the planned route because of the impenetrable pack ice and they had to try and find another way round. But the Victorians assumed that Franklin had definitely followed orders. He also had orders if he deviated from the route to leave behind notes in a cairn to show which way he'd gone, which didn't seem to happen. Ooh, see, that's more unexpected. You would think
0: Franklin, as an expert of Mm. things going wrong in the Arctic, would
1: leave a a little little
0: clue as to what had happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, it may be that he did and they were just never found and that, you know, the cairns got attacked by animals that did happen that's not like <laughs> something i've pulled out of the ether there are cairns that were found without anything in them that have been broken open so maybe there were notes at some point polar bears can read they're interested <laughs> yeah. the polar bears answered the franklin expedition first that's how they followed them on the ice in January 1854, the Admiralty finally declare that without any fresh evidence, they would not continue to fund relief parties and the lotmen of the expedition are declared officially dead. 1850, Yeah. Nine I can't, years. Yeah, I can't see them doing that well. No. Lady Franklin doesn't accept it. She refuses her widow's pension and doesn't wear black. She believes John still could come back to her. No. Nah. Yeah, it's hard to know whether is that sweet or is it just like, you know, belligerence. It might be both. A bit of both. I mean, she's
0: quite symbolically working at embarrassing the Admiralty into actually answering the question.
1: Yeah. Or at least trying to. Yeah. Now, I specified earlier that the Prince of Wales men were the last Westerners to see the Erebus and the Terror for a reason. In 1854. A Hudson's Bay Company employee named John Ray was surveying the Arctic coast on foot. In the course of trading with an Inuit man named Inuk Puzizuk, Ray thought to ask if he had seen any other foreigners about, and Inuk Puzizuk reported that he'd heard tell of a large group of white men who died somewhere to the west. He sold Ray an officer's gold cap band, and later a silver spoon and fork embossed with Crozier's initials, a medal belonging to Franklin, more silverware, and an undervest marked with the initials of one of the other Erebus officers. So from piecing together testimony from several different conversations that Ray had with Inuit visitors, a story began to emerge, which is that 40 men were seen travelling south towards King William Island in 1850, dragging sledges and one boat. Communicating through sign language, they indicated that their ships had been crushed in the ice, and they were now walking south to find food. The men were thin and weak, and the description of their leader seemed to match up with Crozier. Okay. He's sort of tall. Tall and white. It <laughs> could really be any of them. But apparently that really matches up with Crozier. He purchased some seal meat from the Inuit traders and then moved on. 1850? Yeah. That's not bad. That's That's not a bad Innings. Made it it five years. Um, Later in the season, the Inuit discovered the bodies of 30 men on the mainland and five on a nearby island, all close to the mouth of the Great Fish River. So that's mainland Canada. Yes. So they make the walk. They do. So, albeit on foot, they have technically made the Northwest Passage. You are very right. Have they? Have they? They have crossed the Arctic from England. That's a very technical way of saying they've crossed the
0: Northwest Passage. A technical circumnavigation of the world is sailing in a circle in the Atlantic because you've circumnavigated your own passage. They kind of did it. They didn't! Okay, they didn't do it. They. I think the managing to walk to Canada is impressive enough with the situation. They did not do it.
1: Well, <laughs> whatever what your thought on the last
0: days of these poor men. I I just said they did a good job. I'm just not going to give them credit for something that they didn't do.
1: Yeah, that's fair. So it didn't end well for them. Or I mean, obviously, because they're dead. <laughs> Also, some of the bodies were mutilated and human parts were found in cooking kettles. So, Ray is, of course, forced to conclude that the men of the Franklin expedition not only died, but also that our wretched countrymen had been driven to the last dread alternative as a means of sustaining life. Ray naively reports this all back to the Admiralty, thinking that they're going to be really pleased with him. And give him a little bit of money. Yeah. It because ge-
0: there are rewards on offer. It's not me just
1: discrediting Ray there. Yeah, they're offering a reward. It gets out to the press, and the revelation is deemed so shocking that it just can't be true. No Englishman would ever turn to such nasty extremes. Among the naysayers is one guy that you may have heard of, Charles Dickens... Boo.
0: So yeah, you have heard of him then? I've watched Oliver Twist. He puts together a pretty nice musical. I realise that is an immediate
1: opposite of my reaction of going boo. Sort of national treasure, created an amazing body of work, also just a really nasty guy basically, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. So Charles Dickens is a big fan of Franklin's and a friend of his wife's. He published a series of articles in his weekly journal, Household Words, just really laying it into to Ray for spreading such horrible slurs against Franklin. So, for example, he writes... Oh, should I do a Dickens voice? Do a, Dickens, a Dickens voice. voice? <laughs> <laughs> well, my name is Charles Dickens. I need more than you. It is the highest degree improbable that such men would, or could, in any extremity of hunger, alleviate the pains of starvation by this horrible means. And then he also writes, No Franklin can come back to write the honest story of their woes. They lie scattered on those wastes of snow and are as defenceless against the remembrance of coming generations as against the elements into which they are resolving. Therefore, teach no one to shudder without reason at the history of their end.
0: Well, I mean, we are shuddering, but the reason is because the cannibalism happened. Well, not us, we're into it, but... We're supportive of that
1: lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) For survival
0: purposes, not just as a hobby...
1: Ray is roundly attacked for being fool enough to believe Inuit testimony. And in fact, it was suggested by Dickens and others that the men that Ray had spoken to were actually the true cannibals and had killed and eaten Franklin and his men themselves, because of course they would. They're evil. Charles Dickens, famous racist. Despite discovering both the facts and the location of the expedition's fate, Ray received no official recognition for that work. Well, technically, he only found the fate of
0: 40 of them.
1: He found where they ended up.
0: He found where some of them ended up.
1: Yeah. And the reward money, £10,000, was... Lady Franklin did her best to block it. It was eventually paid to Ray, but, ooh, under duress. I know
0: a a fact here. Because Ray went to Lady Franklin... And he basically said, if I get the reward money, I will use it to go north to try and
1: find out the
0: rest of what happened. And still she's
1: like, no. Wow. Yeah. She just really does not want to believe that cannibalism. <laughs> I mean, yeah, not everyone's ass. Whatever's said about the Inuit making up stories... They continue to share consistent accounts over the years with other explorers. So the American explorer Charles Francis Hall encounters the same guy, Inuk Pusizuk, in 1869, who tells him that he found cooked human flesh, that is, human flesh that had been boiled. Are Tra- we a recipe podcast now? <laughs> <laughs> We're going back to the John Smith of what's the best way to cook a body. <laughs> Hull also recorded the account of Shuk, who described finding bodies, a great many had their flesh cut off as if someone or other had cut it off to eat. Then in 1879, the account of Ogzookjirok claims he saw bones from legs and arms that appeared to have been sawed off. The appearance of the bones led the Inuits to the opinion that the white men had been eating each other. His reason for thinking that they had been eating each other was because the bones were cut with a knife or saw. Yeah, that'll do it. So that's multiple sources at multiple points in time, recorded by multiple people. It's looking pretty consistent. Looking pretty cannibalism-y. It is. But back to 1857. Lady Franklin and Dickens continue to raise funds for another mission, and a steam-driven yacht called the Fox is sent out in 1857. And the men on the Fox are told by Inuit traders that a 3 masted ship had been seen to sink off the west coast of King William Island. And another had been forced ashore by ice further south, aboard which they discovered a man's body. So, again, this is consistent with the idea that the ships were far further south than they were meant to be at that time. But, of course, Franklin would never have deviated from his path. No. A cairn was then found on King William's Island, containing a blank piece of paper perhaps a pencil message was on it and it got erased by the damp. Those polar bears just want to do art.
0: The polar bears want to go to college, leave them alone.
1: (laughs) I don't want to do law, I want to do art. There were also the remains of an encampment, large enough for about 12 men, and after more searching, another cairn is found, and this time there is a note in it. Dun dun dun! So now called the Victory Point Note, it's the sole documentation of what happened to the mission in the years it was lost. The main portion of handwriting is identified as belonging to James Fitzjames. William Fitzwilliam. John Fitzjohn, whatever he's called. It's an inconsistent and much amended document as it's been returned to and changed at various points. But to summarise... Fitz James, writing on the 28th of May, 1847, so that's two years after leaving England. So this is in the high old time when everything's going swell. Everything is going swell. He writes, Erebus and Terror wintered in the ice in latitude 70.5 north. Yes, him? you can read numbers, I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, longitude 98.23 west, having wintered in 1846-7, to Beachy Island. So they actually wintered at Beachy Island in 45 to 46. So who knows why Fitzjames wrote 46 to 47. Yeah, it's just
0: talking nonsense.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, you're writing quickly and you do just write whatever. I get the
0: date wrong so much. I know I've signed official things off still saying it's 2016. And then
1: I've looked at it and like, no, we've all done it. Normally we don't sign a date ahead of the current date, but I guess you could. Yeah, it could happen.
0: Um, And it's very confusing up in the Arctic because you have all of that sun for months and then you have all of that darkness for months. You'll think that would mean you could keep track of the seasons quite easily. (laughs) It's confusing. It's confusing. If you have a day that lasts five months and a night that lasts five months and you don't even know
1: what your own name is, it's going to be tough. That is true. There are some more notes about their route that they took, and then the comments, Sir John Franklin commanded the expedition. All well. All well. All well. All will not remain well. A party consisting of two officers and six men left the ships on Monday the 24th of May 1847 for undocumented reasons, possibly hunting or scouting, something like that. Just bored. Bored. Then another note is added on the 25th of April 1848, by Crozier, who writes, HM ships Terra and Erebus were deserted on the 22nd of April, five leagues north-northwest of this, having been beset since 12th of September, 1848. The officers and crew, consisting of 105 souls, under the command of Captain Crozier landed here. Sir John Franklin died on the 11th of June, 1847. Yes, just a couple of weeks after the first note declared that all was well. And then the note continues to say that the total loss by deaths in the expedition has been to this date nine officers and 15 men. That's not good. That's not good. It's also... It it is hazardous terrain. It is. Even if literally
0: everyone else makes it back alive, this expedition has lost more lives than any other british arctic expedition
1: yeah and Im- importantly they have lost franklin franklin's gone it's um not going well no finally a last note is added by fitz james presumably the same sort of time so who knows fitz well... james might think it's 1850 by this
0: point <laughs>
1: From the context where he says, and start tomorrow, 26th, for Baxfish River, I assume that he's writing the same day as Crozier, but maybe it's a year later. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, you can't blame me for Fitzjames's nonsense. Baxfish River is another name for the Great Fish River, um, which John Ray's Inuit informants identified as the destination of the overland party they met. So, so it all lines up. So we're all heading south. Yeah. To safety. Away from all the ice.
0: Away from the ice.
1: On the 24th of May 1859, a large boat was discovered on a nearby beach, equipped for overland hauling. It contained two men's bodies, one of them possibly an officer. Interestingly, its prow was pointed north, suggesting that it was being hauled back to the ships rather than away. Mm. So maybe they changed their mind? Further Inuit oral testimony from later in the century suggests that there were men seen living aboard one of the Beset ships as late as 1848, suggesting that at least some of the men maybe did make it back and remain aboard for a while. And perhaps they abandoned the boat because it was too heavy to haul. And they had dead people in it. (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) were they dead at the time of abandoning? Later on King William Island, they find the skeleton of a steward, Thomas Armitage, He's carrying a wallet of papers belonging to Seaman Henry Pegler, who is believed to have been his friend, or, according to Dan Simmons' novel The Terror, and Leanne Shapton writing for the New York Times, perhaps his lover, based on the tenderness and familiar address in the phrase All my art, Tom, which suggests the letters had been addressed to Armitage. Oh, romance. The papers are filled with indecipherable notes and drawings, sentences written backwards and enigmatic fragments of poetry. One of them's written in the circle. I think that's really nice. (laughs) Those polar bears are very talented. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, maybe they belong to Pegler. Maybe it's the polar bear writing. Maybe the polar bear's called Pegler. Pegler the polar bear. Pegler the polar bear. (laughs) Here's a sample. Oh, death, where is thy sting? The grave at Comfort Cove. Comfort Cove is possibly a reference to the burial location of Franklin, suggesting that maybe it's part of a eulogy, although why a regular seaman would be composing a eulogy is unknown. I mean, it could have been personal. It could have been, yeah. There's a transcription of the papers. I will put a link to that in the show notes. But I would recommend reading them. They're very, it's very fragmented poetry quite a sappho fragments yeah i was about to say yeah. sappho right right <laughs> up my alley um but all in all just another another of the mysteries of the franklin expedition we have the victory point note we have the pegla papers and we have
0: no other written testimony it is a mystery
1: Yeah, so if 50% of your papers are backwards written nonsense, then (laughs) it's not looking great for documentation. Unlike John Ray, because the Fox Expedition smartly don't accuse anyone of cannibalism, its leaders are publicly rewarded, and the leader's published account becomes a bestseller. It was seen as a tale of man's hubris, and inspired the famous landscape by Landseer of polar bears chewing up bloody remains, titled Man Proposes. God disposes. I love this painting so much.
0: We will link it. It's amazing. But I do think we are, well, we, I do think they're rather unfairly accusing the polar bears here. (laughs) Justice for the polar bears. Justice for polar bears. We know exactly who was doing the eating. But it's, oh, it's just such a good painting and the polar bears are like chewing on ribs and there's the destroyed evidence of boats and there's a flag and some binoculars and, oh, it's just haunting, some would say.
1: I do want to point out, we'll get on to bone evidence later, but there are bones with teeth marks that aren't human teeth marks, so the polar bears probably did do some of the eating they're hungry they are and if you find a dead body or a just a an alive body maybe you know what are you gonna do they're polar bears
0: i was thinking more about the people but hey (laughs) 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 it's on display at royal holloway and it's in the room where the students have their final exams and it's said to be haunted and there's an urban myth that in the 1920s or 30s, one of the students stabbed a pencil into their own eye, saying, the polar bears made me do it. And now they cover up the painting when the students are
1: having their exams. It's a pretty bleak thing to have in an exam hall. Like, look, do what you will, but God will punish you for your hubris.
0: Even the college's curator explain the myth, saying that if you sit directly in front of it in an exam, you will fail. Unless it's covered up.
1: They cover it up with a Union Jack. Patriotic, <laughs> even to the last. <laughs> Beautiful. My next subtitle on this document is, So what happened? Um, The overall story of the last days of the expedition can be patched together to look a bit like this. April 1848, ten months after Franklin's death, Crozier and Fitzjames abandon ship and lead their men with sledges across the ice to Victory Point. An officer is sent to fetch the all-well note from the nearby cairn and make some amendments. Then they make it about 50 miles down the coast before abandoning the boat that was later discovered containing the two men's bodies. The party splits, some probably led by Crozier, head for the Great Fish River, some remain in a camp, and some return to the ships, maybe. Further skeletons mark Crozier's route south, with some survivors making it as far as a camp a few miles off the Great Fish River, nicknamed Starvation Cove. I wonder what happens there. Hmm, I wonder, I wonder. By the end of 1850, all of the Franklin Expedition were pretty certainly dead. And if not, very cold. (laughs) Very near death. So that means that only the very earliest rescue parties would have even have had a chance in hell of finding them alive if they'd even been looking in the right place which they weren't. Just to just to add some a little a little bittersweet note on the end the first successful full sea navigation of the northwest passage was completed in 1903 to 06 by Roald Amundsen the Norwegian explorer who will be mentioned in later episodes. There's so many tie-ins when it comes to polar exploration. It's
0: great. You have to keep listening.
1: hmm So, yeah, Franklin wasn't even close in time. Franklin didn't manage it. <laughs> <laughs> Franklin failed. But why did he fail? Ice. I'm <laughs> gonna, I'm gonna Ice. <laughs> I'm going to shut this discussion down now. There are some other. There are some other ideas. It's tempting to agree with Lancia that hubris played a role because it makes for a good, foolish colonists go unprepared into inhospitable environment and surprisingly die narrative. But there are factors beyond their control. So... Ice. Ice. The years they were trapped there were uncharacteristically cold and even the local Inuit referred to them as the years without summers. So lots of ice. <laughs> There's also the hotly debated topic of whether their provisions were at fault. All of those lovely provisions, some of them they even had to throw
0: overboard.
1: Mm. Not literally, probably. probably. A lot of the food was tinned, which is a very exciting... New technology. Yeah, and there have been suggestions that maybe this was part of the expedition's downfall An established supplier was passed over in favour of a cheaper bid from a Hungarian named Goldner, who delivered the tins in record fast time, which is a lesson in why you should stick to your procurement contracts. Really? (laughs) If you've got a contractual agreement. Don't
0: put things out for tender just to go for the cheapest. Otherwise, there will be
1: cannibalism. Exactly. And as they were short on time to leave, the tins weren't even tested before departure. So there have been various allegations against the quality of the food. One suggestion is that Goldner's formula of using bigger tins and working quickly means the food wasn't properly heated all the way through, and so it would have putrefied over time. Yum. Mm Mm-hmm. Another theory is based on samples taken from exhumed remains, which are found to contain higher-than-average lead, and also some tuberculosis, but we already knew about that.
0: Just a bit it's victorian england everyone's got a bit of tb yeah. i say that technically you are not allowed on a ship if you have tb if you have tb you're out thus matey boy earlier yeah. who was sent away
1: yeah and also everyone's got a bit of lead but perhaps the sealant on the tins could have had more lead than normal and poisoned the food that's the theory that the amc series the terror takes up or from the water Because they've got fresh supplies of water. To get onto that. Yes, it could also be the water, correct. Um, The hot water system. And to be fair, Victorian Britain was pretty rife with the stuff, so they could have just already had that much lead in them to begin with. Yeah. They were keen on lead. It's
0: very useful. Line pipes
1: with it. Yeah. Just drink from it. Inject it directly into your veins. Yum. But whatever the cause, the estimated blood levels based on the remains would have had serious physiological and neurological effects, according to an article in Arctic Journal. So they are going to be hallucinating and having a bad time. And writing in circles. Yeah, yeah, he could have just been very heavily lead poisoned. Um, I think the
0: best thing to do with lead poisoning is drop people in the middle of the Arctic.
1: You absolutely. Give them a challenge. There's an, another fun thing about the bones, which you, which you turn me on to, Alex, actually. Some of the profiled DNA appeared to contain no Y chromosomes. Is it possible that there were women serving on board in disguise, or perhaps transgender men? There is a recorded history of this occurring in the Royal Navy. But also, DNA degrades over time, and so maybe when the DNA was amplified for testing, the Y chromosome just wasn't sufficiently amplified. But It would be fun if there were ladies there,
0: wouldn't it? (laughs) We're equal opportunities cannibalism here. They did rule out that those remains could have been from Inuit women. So if there was evidence of there being women of the Franklin Expedition, they would have had to have been part of the expedition. Yeah.
1: And finally, there's also the scurvy question. So the food may have been fully edible and free of lead, but even so, it wouldn't have contained very much vitamin C at all. Maybe we can't blame the tinning process as much as we can blame the idea of relying on tinned food.
0: I mean, we can blame the
1: fact that
0: the Admiralty
1: had sent people north before and could have just given them proper food. They did have vitamin C with them, I think, you know, lemon juice or lime juice, but it degrades over time i'd say overall it's probably a combination of all these different malnutritions and also the the ice the fact that their ships got stuck or sunk and also maybe the terror is right and there was a big polar bear demon following them on the ice but justice for polar bears it's not a polar bear it's like a god demon thing isn't it the tunback tunback I quite enjoy it. it. Was It's not a great show, but I did enjoy it. I had opinions about the cannibalism. Yeah, I, I have many.
0: You can imagine what our conversations are like when we're not recording.
1: Pretty much the same
0: as what they are
1: when we are recording. Just worse. Various attempts at solving the puzzle of what happened, where and when have been made over the ensuing years i know where (laughs) was it the north pole the ice (laughs) one thing we can say for certain is that cannibalism definitely took place because skeletal remains from end stage sites of the franklin expedition show knife marks consistent with dismemberment and defleshing and some even exhibit breakage and pot polish which suggests that not only was the flesh eaten but the bones were intensively processed to extract marrow, which is normally only seen in very desperate, you know, last attempts of survival cannibalism. Like this one. Like this one. So, turns out the Inuit testimony was reliable all along, both about location and about what happened. Who'd have thought?
0: (laughs) of British society at the time, being unwilling to listen to
1: local testimony. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to finish our story in recent times. In September 2014, work by Parks Canada located the wreck of Erebus, west of the coast of the Adelaide Peninsula. And in 2016, the terror was found a little to the north in a cave off King William Island. Which proves that they were way further south than they were meant to be. And it's just pretty cool, I think, that... I know I said I wouldn't use that pun again. That wasn't intentional. It's pretty cool that we have film footage of the ships undersea like that's cool it is cool well hms terror was in fact
0: found in terror bay Mm. i wonder
1: where the inuit came up with that name from yeah it's a strange coincidence isn't it that it happened to to sink there huh weird almost like fate yeah the final thought i want to leave us with is that the Northwest Passage at that time was a brutal, inhospitable, ice-bound route and it would have been literally impossible for the Franklin Expedition to achieve it entirely by sea at that time. But our good friend Global Warming has helped us with that! Because cargo ships can now make it through, even without the accompaniment of icebreakers. And several nations have plans to use it as a shipping route going forwards. So, Franklin's legacy is secure. Yeah, and take that, Arctic. No more ice for you. <laughs> Leave the polar bears alone. If you too would like to journey for the Northwest Passage, please help with the global warming crisis because otherwise there won't be any ice for you to journey through. That really confused me. I was like, are you pro global warming? <laughs> no, stop the global warming. <laughs> Stop the global warming, otherwise it would just be too easy to make the Northwest Passage. And where's... It's just not sexy if you're not going to die on the ice. We can probably just cut that a bit earlier. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that should stay. Okay, well, that's the ending.
0: thank you for listening to our take on the Franklin expedition if you want to hear more about this fascinating story you can head over to our morbid audio network companion grave history podcast and hear their take on this famous
1: story join us next time for the story of adolphus greeley the most fascinating survival cannibalism case you've never heard of
0: Casting Lots Podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast.
1: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table.
0: Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research, written, and recorded by Alex and Carmella, with post-production and editing also by Carmella and Alex. Art and logo designed by Riley at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett, Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at dswack on Twitter casting lots is part of the morbid audio podcast network search hashtag morbid audio on twitter and the network's music is provided by michaela moody michaela moody one on Bandcamp. morbid
1: audio podcast network